What I remember as a child growing up about that particular hymn is two words we don't use very much in our English language. Proffer and supernal. I had to go home and look those up one of the first times I ever heard that. I figured proffer out. Supernal I'm still working through. But uh, what a wonderful promise we have in that hymn. What do you tell a person that is suffering? Let me qualify what we mean by suffering. Often we consider suffering a bad hair day. Things aren't going our way. Things aren't going according to our schedule and our plan. And at that moment, we might even consider that God has given us a raw deal. But that's not the suffering that we're considering when we look at these texts throughout Scripture on suffering. What do you tell a Colleen Little who's struggling with cancer? Or on the bedside of a person that has been struggling with illness and infirmity for many weeks. You give them the promises of Scripture. I can remember in some of my mother's last days, there were two particular verses that I shared with her. One is in our text tonight. Uh, Another is uh, for Paul's words, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And that's really Paul's testimony. If you could boil it all down to one verse to consider Paul's life, it would be for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. But for Paul to live as Christ has so much more than we often consider in our own lives. And it's one of those things that we look at tonight, this theme of suffering that leads to glory that was so prevalent in Paul's writings. I'll begin reading back in verse 12 of Romans 8, uh, the text that uh, Steve considered a few weeks ago, and then through verse 25. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. I believe, if things went according to schedule, that's where you left off. Verse 17a. I'll pick up in verse 17b. If indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. And then the verse that I shared with my mother. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth, together until now. And not only this, 
but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan with those same groanings within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Chapter 8 of Paul's letter to the Romans opens with a proclamation of the believer's freedom from the wrath of God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's negative way of stating what he had set forth in Romans 5 into chapter 6 concerning justification by faith. In other words, there is no condemnation could be phrased. There is justification for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's the conclusion of Paul's argument uh, in chapter 8, verse 1, that he began all the way back, particularly in 6, where he talks about being delivered from the bondage of sin and the penalty associated with that sin through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. He goes on in chapter 8 and continues by describing the Christian life. In particular, how it is that Christians who battle against sin show evidence of the Holy Spirit within them. I'm going to restate that. In 6, into 7, and into chapter 8, one of Paul's points is that an evidence that you have the Holy Spirit living within you is that you are striving against sin, battling sin, struggling with sin. And that, he says, is a way to be sure that you are, in fact, a child of God and that you share in Jesus' inheritance. It's the same thing that we've been considering on Sunday mornings in 1 John. John's teaching that those who are striving against sin and long to obey God for His glory have evidence of that abiding or indwelling presence of the Spirit within them. In verse 17 of chapter 8, Paul changes gears a bit. Steve, again, a few weeks ago, preached from those verses 12 through 17a and the spirit of adoption. What part the Holy Spirit plays initially in our adoption. And that passage concludes with a promised inheritance for the child of God. Again, verse 16, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children... Heirs also. He just he keeps building and building and building. The Spirit, with your Spirit, that you are a child of God. And if you're a child, you are an heir of uh, the things that Christ has uh, inherited as well. And so we see this on and on, that we're fellow heirs with Christ. And if we are battling with sin, then, Paul would say, it is evidence that we are sons. And if we are sons, then we are heirs of glory. Then in verse 17b, where we pick up tonight, Paul further says that our sharing in Jesus' inheritance is connected, never separated from, always connected to our sharing in His sufferings as well. This is the beginning of an important passage where Paul contrasts our present experience on this earth with our future glory. He explains what life is like while we wait in these mortal bodies to be changed into immortality. For these bodies that bear all the marks of sin to be resurrected to glory. 
And for Paul, in a word, this involves suffering. He puts our sufferings here in the context of a decaying world. Yet, he proclaims, there is hope both for the world and for us for this future glory. That is the message of verses 17 and following. And next week, we'll continue with God's care for his children in verses uh, probably picking up in 24 next week. And we'll see that even though we suffer, and we will suffer, we'll see tonight, we can be assured that there is no trial, no tribulation, no amount of suffering in presence or in present day that can ever hinder God's purpose for us. And that is our glory. Well, there are two things for us to consider in our text tonight. First, present suffering is indicative of future glory. Present suffering is indicative of future glory. We sang two hymns tonight that talked about the suffering that we might have as believers along the way and the promise that we have that is ours now, but also that promise that awaits us. As we've already noted, verse 17 serves as a transition from what Steve considered with our inheritance as son to the suffering which necessarily follows those things. Again, Paul, like John, demonstrates that our struggle with sin demonstrates the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit and that it is He, the Spirit of Christ, who, as we saw this morning, God said, is His Son. According to that, his own testimony. It is according to these things that the Spirit testifies to the Christian that he is, too, a child of God. Adoption, our topic for this series, then we consider no small matter. And as we consider this theme of suffering tonight, I would have it look at it from our human frailty standpoint, our weakness, physical illness, those spiritual battles that we might encounter along the way. There's another type of suffering that we'll consider in a few weeks. God's divine discipline for His children. Tonight we look at the first side. In a few weeks we'll look at the second side from Hebrews chapter 12. But again, adoption is no small matter. See, none of us are naturally born children of God. By nature, we're born at enmity with God. We're not part of the family of God. None of us are born naturally as a child, yet... Through the truth of the gospel preached, Paul says, coupled with the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit through Christ, according to the purpose of the Father, we hear, dead man arisen to life, we are justified, and a wonderful fruit of our justification. Consequence is this truth of adoption. And a fruit of that adoption is that glorious inheritance that is ours in Christ as children of God. Now, I trust that Steve covered all that concerning the inheritance well when he preached on it. He laughed, and I knew he would. How can we even touch the surface? How can we begin to plumb the depths of the grace and mercy of adoption? That God, who saw nothing of worth in us, chose us before the foundation of the world, called us to be His child and made it in our own hearts and minds to consider nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I claim. What a wonderful truth that we have 
in considering that inheritance that is ours, the guarantee that we have that awaits us through the finished work of Christ and the sealing of the Spirit as a pledge. Nothing can take that from us. It is ours forever and ever and ever. However, that isn't part of the inheritance that we still await. Future glory. The present offers a very different view. And the things that we consider under this present suffering is indicative of future glory is first the present suffering itself. Verse 17. Paul says that those who hope to share in the glory or Jesus' glory receive that inheritance which is already theirs but will be fully theirs one day when the Lord returns must also be prepared to share in His sufferings. Christians will suffer. I'm going to say it again. This is not a popular message in many circles today. Christians will suffer. We don't have to go looking for suffering. The Word never suggests that we need to walk out on the Columbiana Road and throw ourselves in front of a car. Nor does it suggest that suffering will be ours all along the way. Paul in 2 Corinthians that we read earlier said that when I suffer, I suffer for your sake so that I can identify with your sufferings. When I'm comfortable, he says that. I'm comfortable for your sake so that I can identify with you in your comforts. So when we talk about suffering, it's not something that we need to examine our hearts and say, well, I'm not in the mully grubs and... I'm not suffering, I'm not hurting, I'm not in pain, so maybe I'm not as close to Christ as I should be. But suffering should not surprise us when it comes, for all the reasons that Scriptures give. So Paul says that those who hope to share in Jesus' glory must also be prepared to share in His suffering. If you look at the very first words of verse 18, Paul says that life in the Spirit is a life of suffering. And the reason that is true is because we live in a fallen world. Just because you're filled with the Spirit, just because you are a child of God, just because you've been justified freely by His grace and there is no condemnation that awaits you, you are nowhere guaranteed a life that is free from struggle, free from suffering, free from pain, or free from turmoil. To the contrary, life in the Spirit often is accompanied by suffering because we live in a fallen world. Even though we have new life in Christ, even though we are new creations, even though we are sons and daughters of God, we suffer precisely because we are daughters and children, or sons of God, His children. And we suffer because we live in a world that hates God. That's the side we consider tonight. Godly discipline, divine discipline in a few weeks. Tonight we consider the world that is at enmity with God. The fallen world. We live in a world where the forces of evil, the world, the flesh, the devil, all conspire against our Lord and our Maker because of us and His creation, which before sin entered the world, God proclaimed that it was very good. Some would say that was because of man. I consider that man was the culmination, obviously, of all of God's wonderful creation, but I think his pronouncement, very good, meant all of it from day one through the end of day six. And so he, at creation, before sin entered the world, God proclaimed all very good. But because of the fall, 
Because of the marks of sin on this world, we suffer. This is vital for us to understand, and we're going to camp out a little bit on this suffering part tonight. It's vital for us to understand as Christian, again, in light of some of the misteachings that are happening in our society today that carry a Christian name tag. There are the health, wealth, and prosperity guys who say that if you don't have wealth, you don't have success, if you don't have um, uh, everything that you want in life, if you're not wealthy, if you're not healthy and whole, if you're not experiencing triumph in your life, it's because you lack You just don't have enough faith. God wants you to have abundance. They would tell you that He wants you to be successful. He wants you to have health. He wants you to have riches. That may all be true. And if you don't have those things, they say, well, it's clearly because you lack faith. Paul says, wait just a minute. Hold on just a moment. Paul says eternity is at stake. You can't read the the words that we just read from Romans chapter 8 and see any lack of faith if you're suffering. As a matter of fact, we can certainly imply that the closer we are to God, the more we might expect suffering because we do live in a fallen world. That's what Paul says. He says, if your future glory, i.e. your eternity, If your future glory is tied to suffering, if our present sufferings are but a precursor to glory as Paul, again, an apostle who had the authority to speak for God and write for God and teach for God, if Paul proclaims that suffering is a part and parcel of our growing faith, not a lack of it, then who are we to believe? Are we going to believe Paul or Joel Osteen? Are you going to believe Paul or Creflo Dollar? Or any other number of the health and wealth people along the way? Kenneth Hagin, Joyce Meyer, there's an authority. Paul Crouch, who are you going to believe? Well, again, the only one that has written with any authority and spoken with any authority concerning these things is the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8. You see, if your understanding of Jesus' promise of the abundant life, and by the way, First John, he wrote, I wrote these things so that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Abundant life is God's desire for us. But that doesn't mean it's apart from suffering. If your understanding of Jesus', Jesus promise of abundant life means that it is lacking suffering, you've misunderstood Paul, and worse, you've misunderstood God. Then there are others along the way who cope with suffering, in an effort to get God off the hook for suffering. Their thought is, well, God just couldn't help this. God wasn't able to control this circumstance. When bad things happen to good people, it's just another sign that God wishes that He could help those in those circumstances. But it's just out of His control. This is exactly what some men, pastors, some well-known pastors, concluded after 9-11. This caught God by surprise. God had nothing to do with this. God was not in control of those airplanes. Well, dear friends, what comfort is there in believing that anywhere along the line, even for a microsecond, that God lost control? 
Do you realize that would be all that it would take for oblivion to set in? Two airplanes flying into the Twin Trade Centers was a great, great tragedy. One we'll never forget, I pray, as this nation. But dear friends, God did not lose control. That's a small thing on a large scale. Because if at any moment God's sovereignty is not in any tragedy or any comfort, if God is at any point not in control, in an instant, we'd return to chaos. So there are others that cope. It's a grievous error then to miss the truth that the believer will suffer and that God's sovereign in that suffering. Paul makes that clear in verse 20, that it is God Himself who has subjected His creation to frustration and suffering. They didn't do that willingly. They wouldn't have chosen that path. God subjected them to it. And God is in control of every sphere. He's in charge of sphere suffering. He's in charge of every frustration and every vanity that might enter into our life. Suffering is part of God's plan for His people. And how we handle that suffering is a testimony of God's grace in our life. Paul said, your grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. Life in the Spirit, then, often is a life of suffering. Therefore, the child of God does not need to be surprised when suffering comes. Now, of course, that does present a tension for us, doesn't it? I had a discussion just, this, just the other day with a dear saint who was questioning not the suffering itself, but she was questioning in particular why she was suffering. You see, it's one thing to say, well, suffering is part and parcel of being a child of God. I've come to grips with that. I understand it. But then understanding God's purpose for your suffering is an entirely different issue, isn't it? And that's the discussion I had with this woman. And we've all been there frustrated not knowing why we're suffering. The more we pray, the more faithful we are, at least from our own perspective, the more loving we are to the brethren and the more we obey God and love Him, sometimes even the more counsel we seek in our circumstance sometimes leave us more frustrated, more lonely, more despairing. We know these things ought not to be. And yet, at the same time, All of us as believers must realize that until the Lord returns, until that consummation takes place, where the fallen world is dealt with, until that glory comes in all of its fullness, there will be frustration. There will be times of vanity. There will be times of suffering. And it is just in those times that Paul offers encouragement here. As I told that dear saint, your circumstances do not indicate a failure in any way, of your obedience to God. But they offer an indication of the reality that is the life in believers, that we will suffer. And I gave her these examples. And this is just God's providence. I've been reading the book of Hebrews. I went and did a word study while I had this saint on the phone. There are three instances in the book of Hebrews where we read of Jesus' suffering. Jesus suffered, and for what purpose? The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2.18 that Jesus suffered to be able to aid those who are tempted. More than just the wilderness, but not excluding that. The wilderness temptations, so that He could identify with man 
in our temptations. In Hebrews 5.12, it said that Jesus suffered to learn obedience. Ponder that one. And then in Hebrews 13.12, it says that Jesus suffered for our sanctification. Basically, shorthand, for all that is involved in our salvation. So when we look at the wilderness and Jesus' temptations, what took Him there? The will of God. He was led there by the Holy Spirit. Look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Who took Him into the Garden where He said that great prayer? It was the will of God. Look at Jesus at the cross where He suffered for our sanctification. What took Him there? The will of God. What happened when He got to these places? Was He free of pain? Free from suffering? Did He achieve wealth and health and prosperity? We find in praying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass. What was the cup? What was the cup? It was the will of God contained in His wrath. So I ask, as Paul asked, Do you think that the Father would have called His only begotten Son in uh, that way and that He would have called His adopted sons and daughters that way? The path to glory is the path of suffering. If someone tells you otherwise, their argument is with God, not with you. So we see present suffering is a part of our life. But the glory of that, the flip side of that, that Paul presents in this first point is it's indicative of a glorious future. Verse 18, Paul's main point is not merely to assert that our sufferings continue in this life. That would just simply leave us frustrated and perhaps in despair. His concern is to assert that our sufferings pale in comparison to glory. He wants us to learn not only to continue to suffer on this side of glory, but that life in the Spirit gives us a much different perspective on suffering today. You see, our trials here are very real. And sometimes they are unbearable. But Paul says the glory that awaits is incomparable to those things. Paul wants to contrast present suffering with the glory of the future that awaits in a most dramatic way and on the grandest of scales. And these sufferings which he's speaking of include those inward battles with sin that we continue to have, the frustration which arises from living in a fallen world, as well as coping with the injustices that are often ours in this life, or dealing with opposition or persecution that we face as children of God. The Apostle wants us to appreciate the sufferings, not be frustrated, not despondent. Though our sufferings in this world may be real, And painful, Paul reckons that when they are set against that backdrop of glory, there simply is no comparison. Now by this, Paul does not mean that while we are going through trials at present, we should just hold on and wait till we see glory. Yes, we are to persevere. We are to hold on. But he's saying more than that. He's not telling us that we are only to anticipate seeing glory. I remember a few years back our trip to the Grand Canyon and the anticipation that I had of seeing the Grand Canyon firsthand because of all the things that I'd heard, that, it, that the Grand Canyon was something that was indescribable, that no picture 
could do it justice and that um, nothing could capture the magnificence of it. You had to see it in person. And I can remember anticipating walking up to that ledge, but you didn't have to get all the way to the ledge to see part of the hole in the ground, but walking up to the ledge and just being wowed, amazed. For lack of a better way of putting it, at that moment, there was something from my earthly perspective more glorious than I'd ever seen in God's creation. But that was something that was revealed to my sight. Paul, when he speaks of this uh, glory being revealed, it is not just something that we see firsthand, although that is a part of it. It's not just something that is revealed to you, but Paul says it's revealed in you. He's speaking of our glorification. Not only that glory that you see when He comes, again, that's true, and we will be wowed by that much more than I was wowed by the Grand Canyon. Not just what we'll see when He comes, but that glory which you yourself will be made to share in when He comes. That will cause everything that you've endured at present to pale in comparison. You see, there awaits the believer the day when our relationship to God will be fully restored. When we will be finally adopted. There's a truth of that already, but there's a part not yet. Future. We will be fully transformed. There will be a new creation. A new environment for the redeemed where there is no suffering that we'll look at in a moment. So the believer should not have frustration or despair in suffering, but he should have a proper perspective on present hardship. Paul says, present sufferings are indicative of future glory. Secondly, in verses 19 through 25, Paul says that present suffering is manifest by groanings, longings, desires, passions. He illustrates this present suffering in two ways, both tied to this word groaning. The first illustration he gives is the groaning of creation. Verses 19 through 22. Paul sets forth the present frustration and decay of creation. As we've seen, when we're glorified, it will be clear for all to see who truly are the children of God. On that day, it will be made evident. All will know. That is not the case at present. And Paul says that even creation eagerly awaits that day when God's glory is revealed in us. Why is this so? Well, as we've already seen, God did create the world and all that was in it, and He pronounced it very good. Then sin entered the world. The fall of man and the world itself was caught up in the consequences of it. And ever since that day, because of God's curse, it has been marked ever since by decay and futility. Paul says, For the creation was subjected to futility. Again, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. It was a consequence of the fall. When sin entered the world through our first parents, who are who, Luke? Who are our first parents? Adam and Eve. Just making sure you're awake. We got you. When sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, the perfect created order that God had established was turned on its head by God's judgment. Consequences followed. Enmity arose between people. It was a very short time. 
before Cain killed his brother. And not only were people at enmity with one another, but the very creation itself was tainted by pain, suffering, death. Genesis 3, one particular consequence of the fall was that God cursed the ground. I've always wondered, you know, God, you know, what, what, did the, what did the ground have to do with it? Well, when you understand what original sin really is and how dark and deep a well that sin digs against a holy God, how sinful sin really is, you begin to understand it affects every part of His creation. So, He punished Adam and Eve, put them out of the garden, but He cursed the ground as well, making man's dwelling a place of frustration and marked by decay. But that's not the end of the story. Even in Genesis 3, we see a promise given for restoration. And the prophets proclaim promises of a renewed creation. And this is not simply a slightly better creation, but in something that's entirely new, described as a new heavens and a new earth. The prophet Isaiah, in chapter 11, verses 6 through 9, look, begins to talk about what that's going to look like. Things that, that we don't consider to get along on this earth, to be in harmony with one another, or unity with one another, will be brought together. He said the wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy, a lad, a tot, will lead them. Well, you don't see that today. Who would send their, their four or five-year-old son out to lead a wolf into dwelling with the lamb. All three of those are things that are opposed to each other because of the mark of sin. Isaiah wrote, all of these things will be brought back together. The cow and the bear will graze together. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. A baby in diapers, will play by the hole of a cobra. You see, all of these things that Isaiah says will be in the new heavens and the new earth. The weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then later, in Isaiah 65, verse 17, Isaiah said, For behold, I create, or the Lord said, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. That's grace. The former things will not come to mind. What's he speaking of there? Well, there's an immediate context, but there's a future as well. That all of creation that has been marked by sin, marred by sin, when the new heavens and new earth come together and are created, will no longer come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. Again, when we consider these words from Isaiah, we see that in the place of enmity, there is the restoration of perfect peace, harmony among people, and also between man and his environment. And all of these things will be fulfilled as promised, as we'll see in a moment in Revelation 21, at the end of time. Future glory, and not before. Until that time of renewal, 
Paul says, the whole creation groans and suffers with the pains of childbirth together. Now, by implication, we can carry this over into the groaning of a Christian as well that we'll see in a moment. This groaning or suffering the pains of childbirth. And Paul's illustration perfectly conveys that eager anticipation, the longing for a future hope that's going to come out of the pain and the suffering. Now, I have never personally experienced birth pains in my life. And I'm too old to give birth, so I probably never will. There's much more to it than that, I hope. Okay? I've never personally experienced birth pains. But like the anticipation that I encountered on that Grand Canyon trip, when my entire perspective was changed once I saw it, so it is with birth pains. They may be praying, praying, they will, not may, women, I'm sorry, mothers, they will bring pain for the moment. Sometimes it's unbearable pain for the moment. Again, men, ask any woman that's ever born a child. But these pains, again, while painful for the moment, point to imminent life. There's great joy that awaits at the end. Another thought came to mind further of this when we consider birth pains. We don't know when they're coming. We don't know when they're coming. I can remember the first contractions with with Bailey. And there they were. We don't know when they're coming. We don't know how long they're going to last. When they do come, we don't know how severe they're going to be. And yet, because of the anticipation attached to that pain, that life that awaits, it's with great joy they press on. And that is Paul's point in this illustration, particularly as it relates to creation. Although we are to expect frustration and pain in this fallen world, Paul gives great assurance that this decaying world has a glorious future. And if the decaying world has a future, where all fallenness will be removed, and creation will be set free from its bondage, and liberated from frustration, just as Isaiah promised, if creation has that promise, then so do we. Just as the world suffered with mankind at the fall, so it will be renewed when it's restored. One writer put it this way, Creation itself must be redeemed so that the redeemed humanity may have a fitting environment in which to live. In other words, it's restoring the Garden of Eden and beyond. Because see, not even Adam and Eve created an image of God with perfect righteous holiness and judgment had a glorified body. It would be even better than that. It would go beyond the Garden of Eden. An environment, yes, that He created for Adam and Eve that was perfect for them to continue to have fellowship with Him, it will be more than that. Creation itself, Paul says, will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The same inheritance that awaits the children of God awaits all of His creation. And that is why creation anxiously awaits, groans, for God's children to be revealed as they will be in all glory. But secondly, not only does he give by illustration the groaning of creation, he also shows the groaning of Christians. The second illustration Paul gives is the sons of God themselves. The principle of suffering leading to glory 
is reflected in creation itself, but it's also reflected for us, for our own purpose, as sons of God. He says, and not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, just like creation, groan within ourselves, just like creation, waiting eagerly for all that is ours as the children of God, all that comes with our adoption, that yes, has already taken place even before the foundation of the world, but we fully and finally ours when the Lord returns. The redemption of our body. Paul puts together a whole number of issues in that verse. He says we are the first fruits. We have not only us as the first fruits, but the Holy Spirit as the first fruit. What Paul means is that the Spirit Himself is the first fruits. And He is the guarantee of that which is to come. He is, as it were, as Paul says in Ephesians and other places, the down payment, the pledge of our inheritance. He's that guarantee. And just like on the day of Pentecost, when they gathered together for the Feast of Pentecost, celebrating harvest time, the first pickings of the tree were a statement of the harvest that awaited. The same is true with the Spirit's guarantee of our future inheritance. Nothing can separate us from the glory of God. For those who are truly in union with Christ, for those who are truly children of God, for those who have the first fruits of the Spirit, they will live in the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth. So in this world, we groan right alongside creation if the Spirit of God is within us. We groan. We long. We desire. We live our lives in mortal sinful bodies causing us to groan just as Paul groaned in Romans 7.24. Wretched man that I am, he said. Who will set me free from this body of death? This is just prior to chapter 8. Wretched man that I am. He's got this great battle within himself with sin. I don't do the things I want to do. I do the things I don't want to do. Who's going to set me free from this? And he doesn't leave us hanging. He immediately gives the answer. Thanks be to God in verse chapter 7, verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who's going to deliver Him? Christ. Fully and finally, through Jesus Christ His Lord. Therefore, Paul was not hopeless in his struggles, in his strife, in his struggle with sin. And we don't need to, uh, to be hopeless either when we realize what the Spirit has done in us and what God promises for the future. I would say, as a matter of fact, as believers, we have more certainty about our future than we do about our present. Let that sink in for a moment. We know more about what awaits us on the other side, the inheritance, than we do the struggles and the sufferings that are ours today. And so, that is our hope. Paul encourages us by emphasizing the confident and patient expectation that should be ours as we await the fulfillment of God's promises. Promises that we find fully and finally in Revelation 21 that I've already mentioned a few times. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. Dear friends, that is a fulfillment of the new covenant. I will be their God, and they will be My people, and I will write My law on their hearts. All of the I wills that are part of the, of the new covenant come to fruition in Revelation 21. He will dwell among them and they shall be His people. And God Himself will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Even the tears of our selfishness are gone. He will wipe away the tears from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Why? The first things have passed away. And Isaiah, from the words of the Lord, reminded us, no longer will they ever be remembered. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. I love, I love that last phrase. Write it down. I want all the saints for all eternity to know, may it never be taken from my word, By the way, the words that follow, no jot or tittle shall pass away. No one shall take away from thee. Write it down. These words are faithful and true. God said, book it. This expectation is another of the convictions that the Holy Spirit as the first fruits gives us. Stuart Alliot said, having the foretaste, we long for the feast. We've just not even had the best of the hors (laughs) d'oeuvres. Having a foretaste, we long for the feast. But the foretaste is in itself the guarantee that the feast is going to follow. I like that. Paul's conclusion, his encouragement is, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for our adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. Yes, there is a sense we are redeemed, have been redeemed. But in our glorification, we'll receive that glorified body that is ours. He assures us that just as creation does, Christians can and should anticipate being liberated from these mortal bodies. That is the glorious future that awaits all of us who are adopted in Christ. So, dear friends, if you suffer tonight, lift your eyes from the suffering. Lift your eyes from the circumstance. Leave those present frustrations and despair and discouragements behind and focus on what is yours in Christ. Now and tomorrow. And trust that whatever circumstance you find yourself in today, God has put you there. If you're His child, for His own glory. Yes, even if it is suffering. Let's pray.